Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning. You know, usually I have a very different view on Sunday. I'm upstairs with my favorite members of the church and the kids' class. And fun fact, I actually did the same exact lesson last week with the Tiny Tots. I have no doubt it will go well here because at the end of the day, aren't we all just bigger versions of small children? So last week at Hope, we looked at hunger and when we feel it, when we feel God near. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with you about when we don't. So whether you are more cerebral or more touchy-feely, I think we can all agree, especially if you've gone through suffering, that there have been times where you just don't feel it. So let's set the context, the time and place in which you feel. We're in the middle of an emotional revolution. We're in the middle of feelings trump almost everything. It's a movement, and there are pros and cons to this movement, a light and a dark side, like with every movement. And it's important to acknowledge that, because if you can't find the balance, you'll lose sight of what is true and what's real. So, the light side, the pros of the emotional revolution. You know, Fred Rogers, when he was a child, he said that he was not allowed to feel anything. He couldn't express anger, so he took out his frustrations in music and he learned how to play the piano. And if you know anything about Fred Rogers, he became an incredible piano player. And he made it his life's work to educate adults that they, just like children, are allowed to feel. That if children feel deeply, which he enlightened them to, then they were allowed to feel as well. And so we started to perk up and wake up to this concept wait a minute, I think, I have some, I think I'm feeling something. And who is the patron saint of all adult human emotion? Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you know, he's this unlikely hero, right? On screen, he's like, yay, hi, but he's a hero. He's the best pilot, he gets to shoot laser guns, and he saves the day. And the very means by which he's able to save the day is because he's able to tap into his feelings. So if you remember in the first movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi's in his ear like, Luke, Luke, listen to your feelings. Has anyone seen the, the new the Star Wars that just came out in theaters right now? Oh yeah. Went and saw it on Friday night with the youth group. So good. Uh, you could play a little game if you want. Count how many times you hear the word feelings. Better yet, turn it into a drinking game. You will never walk out of there. All right, so feelings are impacting our culture, and I think there's some pros to that. I like living in a world where men feel like they can still be a man in a moat. I like that. I want to see more of that. There's a dark side, though, pun intended, to this emotional revolution. Very dark. Feelings have been painted as such that they're so exclusive and so pertain to my inner world that no one could possibly know what I'm going through unless they're in my shoes. Well, that's impossible, exactly. But there's this narcissistic victim mentality bent 
with feelings, and we use feelings as a platform to manipulate all of our environments around us, and we don't even know it. The worst part about the dark side is we don't talk about it, ever. Okay, so an example, what's going on in culture? Let's say you go to a friend and you tell them, you hurt me really bad. Let's say they're a Christian. What are you expecting from that? Wait, what? Oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize that. Usually more often times than not, and I've done it too, the reaction is, I feel so misunderstood. In fact, I feel like you're judging me. I think you've just decided what my intentions were when you saw this bad fruit or consequences for my behavior. And you, the listener, are like, what? I have no idea what your intentions were. That's really not the point. All I know is that behind wherever you go, there's this wake of destruction, and I love you enough to tell you about it. And I'm, I'm hurting. Yeah, but you know what? I can't focus on that right now. Do you see that? The deflection. Do you know how many relationships this has, this has ruined in the church? This lack of ability to take responsibility, and what is the weapon more oftentimes than not? Feelings. So I don't really love the word feelings. That's the kind of the point I'm making. I actually prefer emotion. I prefer emotion, and what is emotion for me? It's feelings, yes, but emotions linked to concrete realities that have the power to impact our lives. Circumstances. And here's my favorite thing about them. They're not up for debate. That's something we can all agree upon, right? The best example of an emotion is linked to suffering is mourning induced by death. The fact that it's not up for debate that death halts life, I find it kind of comforting that you don't have to write a pitch report to your employer that the death in your family then means time off work. It's not up for debate. Reimbursed airfare, it's always that exception to the rule because death halts life. And the fact that we all agree upon that is this little ironic common grace amidst tragedy, isn't it? Not up for debate. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. A common hindrance to feeling God near or your desire to fast, which is what we're doing right now, is... Emotions connected to concrete realities that have the power to impact us. And when we want to look at how to get through things, we look at the people who've gone before us and we see how it worked out for them. And so we read our Bibles and we go back to the Old Testament and we, we meet a woman named, who better to discuss today than her, when it comes to emotions linked to suffering, than Naomi from Ruth. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we are people who are not immune to suffering, and we share this un unfortunate level playing field that we all will taste suffering, we'll all have to see something as horrific as death and experience it ourselves. So Lord, we ask that you guide us through this message. I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to guard the four corners of this room, protect it from distraction. I pray that we take a mental fast right now from the things that are pressing on our mind from work and family and home, and we hone in and we commune with you and we hear what you would have us hear today. Whatever people need to hear today that would encourage them, I pray that they would hear it. Lord, work through me. I'm your humble servant who is broken and flawed and would like to live the very things that I'm going to say as well. So help me in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would join me in reading Ruth 3 through 5 here on the screen, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but everything will be there right there for you. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she, left, she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. 
After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Then Naomi said to her two daughters, daughters daughters-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than it is for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And, I, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So the book of Ruth is called Ruth, right? But I always believe that any narrative is actually about the person who undergoes the most transformation. In this case, we find Naomi Naomi in the beginning utterly broken. Not only has she endured the roughest blow a person can endure, death, she's endured it three times. And if you were to peel back her circumstances, you're going to find a very painful worldview, which rivals her circumstances. This is something to keep in mind. No matter how you're doing or what you're going through, you always believe something. So what does Naomi believe? Well, first, Naomi believes, I'm worth tending to if I have something to offer. Kind of like classic female, right? Even to her daughters-in-law, she thinks the only reason you would share life with me and keep me around is if I could give you something. In this case, this absurd notion that she would have more sons that would grow up and marry. She's actually sounding mad when she's talking because she has such a narrow view of her purpose in this world that she goes to this, she takes you through this weird narrative arc of this what if that's impossible and then laments it, right? And because Naomi believes that she only has purpose if she can give you something, this is interestingly how she also views God. The second thing that Naomi believes about herself, I know God loves me if I'm free from suffering. We would never do that today, would we? We would never think something like that. How about this? I know God loves me if I'm hashtag blessed. Some things never change. Naomi tells her community in verse 20, God has dealt very bitterly with me. And her, her grief leads to such a loss of faith 
that she does something next. She encourages Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, to not only go back to their people, but to go back to who? To their gods, their lowercase g, pagan gods. Without saying it, she is saying, if this could happen to me, it could happen to you. Why would you follow this God if he could let suffering like this happen? You have better odds with these pagan gods than you do the God of Israel. Naomi is a daughter of Israel. And look what happens. Orpah was going to go with her back to Bethlehem, have access to truth, and she deterred her. Orpah took her advice, and she never entered into safety. Do you see what kind of impact you can have because of things you believe? And last, the last thing that Naomi believes is the scariest one of all. Naomi believes that her suffering is her identity. And worse, she's become so consumed with her new identity that she fools herself into thinking that she's the only person that knows what suffering is. Did you see how many times she said me in the scripture? Me, 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 me. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, Jordan, gosh, can you like ease up on her a little bit? She lost her husband and her two sons. I know, that's horrible. But look at who she's talking to when she says in verse 13, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Who is she talking to? Ruth and Orpah, who are they? Two brand new widows. Naomi was... She was supposed to protect them, but she led them astray. The only thing that Naomi has to her name is her friendship that Ruth offers her. So, as we read, Ruth does pick up and go with Naomi back to Bethlehem, and Ruth starts to gather food in a close relative's field, Boaz, who we'll talk about. And she gets the food, and she brings it back to Naomi, and she, this is one of the best ways to take care of someone, by the way, she practically meets her needs, and she feeds her. And Naomi eats the food, and she's given back her energy, and she starts to perk up a little bit. You see a little bit of a transformation take place. Naomi re-energized, starts to think, maybe I'll become a player again in my own narrative. Remember before, though? She's like, there's no hope for me, all is lost. Remember that? But now look, we didn't read this part, so I'll tell you. What do women do when they have nothing else to do and they want to help? They help other women get married. Also, some things never change, right? <laughs> so Ruth's like, you know what? I want to get back involved in the narrative that's my life. So she gives Ruth this advice in chapter 3, verse 3 through 4. Wash and put on your perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. When Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. If you're like, what? What? What is that? What Naomi's advising Ruth to do is get ready for the most important date of your whole life, and then go ask Boaz if he'll marry you. We don't even do that today. Never mind the cultural context of which we're about to talk about. But Ruth's like, yeah, I'll go do it. Sure, whatever you say. I'm following you. And here's the crazy thing. Ruth goes to Boaz and asks this question, and it works. What's happening to Naomi here? It's this, this advice is kind of like, we've got nothing to lose advice. And it has a spirit behind it of, you know what? If you want to help yourself, you just got to get up and get involved. 
And Naomi's doing the best she can with the agency she has in her culture. This is all she's got. She has no power. She's like beyond the bottom of the totem pole, right? So then enters into the narrative Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Who's this? We didn't read this part, so I'm going to explain it. Culturally speaking, in this day and time, there were a couple very important things the culture worshipped. One of them was marriage, children, and lineage, a man's name. These were life and death matters. If you read in other books of the Bible, women profess, I would rather die than be barren. So it's a good thing twisted and warped into something that's like, what? What have we done to this? Lineage was the most important thing, and a culture demanding that it happen picked up a custom, created a custom, where when a man died, the widow would marry the close male relative of the dead man, marry her, have children through her womb on behalf of the dead man to keep on the dead man's name. So if you're thinking, that's weird, you are correct. <laughs> but before you too quickly judge this culture, just remember Sometime from now, people might be looking back on our culture and saying, they did what? They did what in pursuit of the idols they thought they held so dear? Yes. So before we judge the culture, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are all living under the social fabric of their time, right? They're like players, pawns on a chessboard, and they have no control over the chessboard that has been handed to them. It, they're working with what they're given, and they all have a role in it. When you read the Old Testament, you never say it's prescriptive, otherwise we would be doing this, right? We're not supposed to marry, no, no, we don't do that because it's not what God wanted. Just because something's happening in the Bible does not mean it's prescriptive. It's just saying what the context was they were living in and trying to survive in. So who's Boaz? Boaz is the socioeconomic kinsman redeemer, and I have no problem with that. I like Boaz. He's a man of privilege, yes he is. Or in this case, let's just say he's a man because of the culture, right? I don't dislike him because of the privilege he has. What makes me fond of him is the character he has while he has power and how he wields it on behalf of others. So instead of shaming Ruth, Ruth could have gone and be like, can you please like help us out here, is what she did. Instead of shaming her, he honors her. He could have easily said, how dare you put me in this position? What are you thinking coming here? You could have ruined both of our reputations. No, I, in fact, I actually like to think he thought, I, I put them in this position to make them feel like they had to do this. Wow, I'm going to take care of the issue today. I like Boaz. He's worth liking. So he's a kinsman redeemer, right? Kinsman meaning related family. Redeemer meaning picked them up from this social status and got them to here to safety, right? But who is he the kinsman redeemer of? He's the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. What about Naomi? Well, you're thinking, well, she's going to benefit from the marriage, so he's the kinsman redeemer of Naomi too. I don't think so. Any kind of comfort that Naomi will ever have in the future is because of one person. There would be no kinsman redeemer if it weren't for who? Yeah. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, but Ruth is the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. Without her, there is no future that we're now saying. This is pretty powerful stuff, right? Okay, so have fun with this part. 
If you haven't read the book of Ruth, I encourage you to read it. It's very short, but it's jam-packed full of wisdom and encouragement. Go all the way to the end of the narrative. The marriage works out. You remember that lineage they held so dear, so important to them? More important than life itself? Raven doing weird things with people's bodies. Remember that? God looks down on it, and he's like, huh, interesting. This is what they're doing with lineage. Um, all right, I have an idea. I'm going to put myself in it and redeem it. Because wherever he is, it just becomes beautiful, doesn't it? So at the end of the narrative, Ruth and Boaz have a little baby boy named Obed. And this Obed is on the way to a Jesse and a David and another little baby boy. But real quick first, go back to Naomi holding the baby. She's a new Naomi. She's completely transformed. I would actually argue this is a Naomi that's never existed before, ever. Because this is a Naomi who's gone through hell and back. And she's full of joy, not Mara, which means bitterness anymore. Her name is changed again, which means a name change in that culture is a transformation change. She's happy, and even her community around her affirms, hey, look what God's done for her. Okay, you remember that social fabric of our time we talked about? The context in which Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are moving and just trying to survive. Remember that? Do you remember the context of the idols? The most important thing to this culture is biology, children, lineage, and Naomi's holding a little baby she's not related to. And the means by which she has this newfound joy is from a woman she's not related to at all. In fact, this woman's not even Jewish. She's a Moabite. What is going on here? What is this? Well, what is God doing? He is shaking up the foundations of everything we think we know about love, and it's a glimpse of the coming kingdom. Because in this same town, hundreds of years later, that other little baby boy that was born in the manger that we celebrated last month, he's there. And we look into the manger together like we all did, and we worship him like Mary did. We treasured up all these things in our heart about him. And I like to think that I pick him up out of the manger, and I hold him in my arms, and I say, this baby's mine. Don't you say that? He's all mine, and my life will never be the same. And I'm not related to this baby. In fact, I'm nothing like this baby. And neither are you. But he's my baby. And he's yours, and nothing will ever change that. And this baby grows up and becomes a man. And this man has the worst day of his life. He's betrayed by all his friends. He's tortured. He's impaled and put on a cross. And he's hanging there in agony. And what is he doing? Well, he's not saying, God has dealt very bitterly with me. And he's not saying, you know, I feel really misunderstood. Though if anyone could ever say that, wouldn't it have been him? No, what does he do instead? He's thinking about everyone else but himself. He prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think they knew exactly what they were doing, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the judge. What is he doing? He's thinking about you and me. And then he does something that is truly profound, and I don't think I'll ever grasp how much it has impacted my life. 
but he says something that changed me forever, and I hope it changes you too. He's hanging there, and he conjures up the strength to get oxygen in his lungs from his impaled feet. He positions his diaphragm so he can speak, and this is how he chooses to spin his words. He says to his mother, Mother, behold your son. And he points to his disciple and friend, John. And he says to John, Behold your mother. And the scriptures and witnesses say from that day forward, the woman went into his home and was taken care of by him until she died. Wait a minute, what is going on here? Mary had other biological children. Why would she go into the home of a complete, not, well, relative? What's going on here? What is Jesus doing? Let this impact you. He's creating the first church family from the cross. It is the initiation of the coming kingdom. And if you ask yourself, what's a church family? People who are not related that live as if they were related in the name of Jesus. People who live as if they're married and belong to one another like children. Who do it all for the very person who did that for them. You see, we were the outsiders who were adopted. We were the ones who were not connected or privileged. You want to call him a kinsman redeemer? You can't unless he says, they're my family. I'll prove it. We're not family unless he grafts us in. And he did. If you are new to faith or if this is your first time at church, we have a very sacred and special ceremony called the Lord's Supper. It is the bread, the body broken, and it is the cup, the blood spilt for you and for me. And it acknowledges and it honors that promise of never-ending friendship. That's one of the most powerful things you can ever receive in life, and the proof is what Jesus said himself. There's no greater love than this, than one who lays down their life for their friends. And when we take communion, we take the bread and we take the cup, and we don't look at them we ingest them. We take them into us. And when you are a baptized, believing Christian, you should hear from Christ himself. Wherever you go, I will go. I am here, in you. That's what the ceremony represents. And my Father will be your Father, and my God will be your God. I am he. I am the life that Jesus lived, who he was, everything he ever meant to anyone is encapsulated in one verse that we already read this morning. Listen to it again. If you're doubting that you have a friend, don't listen to what is said. Watch what he does. Watch what he does and let it impact you forever. Let yourself believe it. Jesus says, and this is what kept him nailed to the cross, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That's him. And it never did. It never did separate us. It can't ever separate us, ever. He lived for this and he died for it. The big question today, has you, have you found your Ruth? Have you found your kinsman redeemer, the most ultimate friend that will never betray you? We started off this lesson asking, how are we going to get through times when we don't feel it? What are we going to do? Don't you see that everyone around you is not different from you, but very similar? 
We're on this trajectory going to come what way. We don't know what waits for us. It actually may not be very good, and we're all coming from brokenness and suffering. We're on this journey. What if it's not the world gets to decide how much you're worth and not you get to decide how much you're worth, but what if on this journey of life you're walking to who knows, come what may, just like Naomi, and you look over and you have this ultimate friend. The question for you today is, will you let Jesus come with you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for truth. We thank you for the fact that it exists and it's real even when it doesn't feel like it. We thank you that there are things that exist outside of us that are just true because they are. And no matter what we feel about them, they will exist without us all the same. And these truths say that we're worth something. And these truths say that it's going to be okay. And these truths say that when it stinks, just keep going and look who's walking next to you. God, I pray for every person here to be comforted and a reminder of their ultimate friend in Jesus Christ. And I pray that if people here have not accepted and tasted what is good and true about them regarding their worth that was proven when it was nailed to the cross, I pray they would receive it now. Lord, we love you so much. We do everything for you. And it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.